0: This episode of the Art of Manly's Podcast is brought to you by MSX by Michael Strahan. Raise your game with MSX by Michael Strahan, athletic-inspired, functional piece of design for guys who are always on the go, available exclusively at JCPenney. From working out, playing golf, or just relaxing, MSX by Michael Strahan has you covered. MSX includes MSX basics, pants, shorts, shirts, sweatshirts, and outwear, big and tall, and boy sizes too. MSX by Michael Strahan is available exclusively at JCPenney. Visit a store near you or go to jcp.com. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In the modern age, shame is often seen as an unmitigated bad. According to this popular review, all shame is negative and toxic, and steps should be taken to avoid and rid oneself of it. My guest today, however, makes the contrarian case that some shame is actually necessary to develop a true sense of self. His name is Joseph Burgo. He's a clinical psychologist and the author of the book, Shame, Free Yourself, Find Joy, and Build True Self-Esteem. Today on the show, Joseph and I discuss what exactly shame is, what it feels like, and the difference between toxic shame and productive shame. Joseph then walks us through the sources of shame and how childhood shame can mark us for life. We then discuss tactics we use to mask or avoid feelings of shame, how these masking behaviors can sometimes get in the way of us making progress in our lives in more productive ways to engage with shame. Joseph then digs into the culture of online shaming and the dangers we face as a society when we shame men by pathologizing healthy masculine attributes like assertiveness, risk-taking, and competitiveness. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.if slash shame. Joseph joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Joseph Burgo, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you are a psychotherapist. You've written several books, and your latest is called Shame, Free Yourself, Find Joy, and Build True Self-Esteem. Now, shame is a topic that's gotten a lot of attention lately in the past few years, particularly online shame. Maybe we can get into that a bit, but before we do... Let's say, what is shame exactly? Because I think when people talk about shame, they might be talking about something else than
1: what other people are talking about shame. They're usually talking about one type of shame. Shame turns out to be a whole family of emotions. They have a similar basis in our physiological responses, in our biology. But shame can be a lot of different feelings. They all make us feel bad about ourselves, they make us self aware in some way that's painful. So, Shame could be self-consciousness, embarrassment, guilt, mortification, humiliation. You know, it could be extreme or mild. It could be fleeting or it could last for a long time. But all those shame feelings have that painful awareness of self in common. And this is something that even like Darwin noticed that
0: all humans experience, and even maybe some animals to a certain extent. Like there's a there's a certain sense of
1: self consciousness that we share as, as humans. Well, and if you if you look at the evolutionary reasons why we might have the ability to feel shame, you know, it has survival value. There's every reason to believe that other animals could experience shame too, even if they're not self-aware in the way that humans are
0: i mean so what are those reasons why do we have shame like why why is it i mean it feels terrible but we feel it for a reason from an evolutionary evolution theory would say well there we
1: have it's there for a reason so what's the reason that we think it's there well the the most recent studies say that it's there to promote group unity and conformity with tribal values so it if you violate The expectations of the tribe and you put everybody at risk by your behavior. You're going to be shunned. You're going to be left out. And evolution gave us the ability to feel shame so that we would want to avoid that pain, right? So nobody wants to feel ashamed. So you're likely to conform to tribal values. You're likely to cooperate with other members of your tribe and if, if you don't, then you'll be shamed, and that encourages you to behave differently next time. So it does have survival value because it promotes your chances of surviving, and it promotes the tribe's chances of surviving and triumph over triumphing over competing tribes.
0: So shame is just that feeling of, you know, that we're, we did something wrong, right? It can be like embarrassment, even other types of emotions, being left out, etc., there's also this talk that there's a you know I've I've read in different books on psychology when they talked about shame like there's a difference between shame and guilt. Do you, we're going to start off, like, what do you, what, 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 are the, what do people typically say the difference between shame and guilt is, and do you think there really is a difference? Well,
1: the, you know, the classic formulation was put forward by John Bradshaw. He wrote that book, Healing the Shame That Binds You. Uh, there have been other people who have said the same thing, but he put it pretty succinctly. He said, guilt is about what you do, shame is about who you are. I think that's true in some limited way. I, I tend to look at it slightly differently. I see guilt as a member of the shame family and it's, it's about something specific and it's less pervasive than other types of shame, but it still involves that bad feeling about yourself. It just, it's just specifically about something you did rather than something larger. So,
0: and also when people, psychologists write books about shame or guilt, shame is typically framed as something completely negative and you have to like get rid of, you know, get rid of completely. You make the case that that's not necessarily the case. Shame can actually be useful in developing ourselves as individuals. That was
1: the whole reason why I wrote this book, because I'm, I'm well, I'm kind of tired of it, but also troubled by the narrative that shame is this uniformly bad thing. I think we live in a kind of, we've got an anti-shame zeitgeist going on. It's like, you know, nobody is going to make anybody else feel ashamed about anything. And, you know, that's, that's a really useful perspective when it comes to being a more inclusive society people who have been you know excluded because they don't conform to social norms and they've been subjected to shame this is a topic that that Andrew Solomon deals with in his book Far from the Tree Outliers you know i think we should be less shaming we need to become more inclusive and and make room for people who you know are hearing impaired or suffer from dwarfism or are autistic or handicapped in some other way but there are times when shame is not a destructive force. It's, it's, it's telling us something about ourselves if we'll listen to it. I think that we often feel shame when we, we disappoint the healthy expectations we hold for ourselves and when we behave in ways that betray our own values. You know, if we do that, I think we ought to feel ashamed. I think shame can be useful in those cases if we, if we don't, you know, Defend against it, you know, in just the way that shaming in a tribal setting encourages, you know, you to behave in ways that support tribal values and, and help everybody. If you, if you feel shame in relation to yourself, it might be a way of telling you you're, you're not conforming to your own values and you need to change. Right. And I've, we've written about the
0: concept of honor right? Sort of it's a masculine virtue that you can see across cultures. And it's sort of in honor you can equate to as like a sense of esteem, a sense of your place in your your group, whatever it is. But like honor cannot exist without shame because you have to know like you're not doing the thing that could bring you honor. So you feel a sense of shame and that causes a course correction in your, in your behavior.
1: I, exactly. It's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, a, a traditionally masculine virtue like honor doesn't get a lot of respect these days. It, it's usually it's usually linked to a kind of restrictive, vindictive sort of code of behavior that causes men to behave in you know in aggressive ways towards other men when they feel that their honor or reputation is challenged. So I I see honor as a really good thing. That's not the way it's often approached these days. And this whole idea is sort of so anti
0: shame zeitgeist you talked about. It kind of explains all of social media. Like people just people don't care about doing i don't know like looking like, you know being honorable right all they care about is attention and oftentimes the way you can get attention is just being as shameless as possible uh, and you see just just really just, you know, just terrible things that people do online just to get that
1: attention exactly and that was that was the subject of my last book the narcissist you know writing about the other side of shame which is narcissistic kind of behavior that often appears shameless
0: and so another thing so shame can be good. It, we'll talk more about how it can how we can use shame to create a, you know a true sense of self, true sense of esteem and honor in our lives. So that's one misconception, but something else that whenever you read books about shame is that there's different types of shame. There's good shame and there's toxic shame. Do you make that distinction in the way you think about shame?
1: I I do. I find the idea of toxic shame, that's, again, that's John Bradshaw's idea. I find that really useful, and it's very much linked to a concept that I use of core shame, which we might talk about. But, But toxic shame is destructive because it's not about something specific. It's not pointing the way towards you know, growth and improvement. It's, it's a, a total indictment of someone's character as being essentially without value and unlovable. So, that's, that's the destructive type of shame. So, how's that related to your idea of core shame? I, I've worked with a lot of people over my career who had horrific childhoods, and they were left with this feeling inside that there was something defective and ugly about them, unlovable, and that that can be linked to toxic shame. The difference that I make is that sometimes that sense of core shame is telling you the truth about something, and and this is a message nobody wants to hear, and I get a lot of flack for it. Is that sometimes your childhood can have been so damaging that it's marked you for life. It doesn't mean that you can't grow, doesn't mean you can't build self-esteem, doesn't mean you can't feel good about yourself, but it, it might place some limits on what you can do, what you're capable of, and that that sense of being damaged by your past is what I call core shame. Okay. So, like, toxic shame, an example
0: of that would be, like, you feel shame, ashamed because you have some sort of disability, right, or some handicap, and, like, because you have that, you are... You are un- unredeemable. Core shame, you know, you might have had just a horrific childhood where you didn't have a disability, but you, your parents treated you, or not even your parents. could just be someone treating you in such a way where you just feel defective as just to your being and that there's no value in you as well.
1: More or less, that's right. But it, it's interesting that you bring up the handicap because that's that's the the metaphor I use for core shame is, let's say... You suffered from rickets when you were growing up during the time when your bones, your skeleton was forming. Even if you correct your diet later on as an adult, you can't, you can't change that. You, you know, having had rickets, a vitamin D deficiency as a child growing up, it will mark you physically for life. And. I say the same thing about certain kinds of emotional and psychological damage you experience when you're growing up that, that it's going to mark you for life. It doesn't mean you can't do things. It doesn't mean you're completely without value and utterly incapable of anything, but it it might place limits on what you can do. So, you know, if I have some sort of physical handicap, that doesn't mean I can't, you know, go on and compete in the Special Olympics. Doesn't mean I can't do lots of things, but I might not be able to, you know, compete in the regular Olympics. This is, I know people don't like hearing this. I just think it's, it's better to be honest about the way our paths, pasts, our physiological past, our psychological past can place limits on our, on our future. It's better to take those limitations into account rather than pretending there are no limitations, and then failing and feeling more shame, if you see what I mean.
0: No, I get what you're saying. I think I've seen that happen in the lives of a lot of people in my own life, where you don't take into account your own limitations, and you you go, you reach for the stars, right? You can be whatever you want to be, but like that can't sometimes not in the cards for you for whatever reason it doesn't mean you can't have a good flourishing life but sometimes you have to you have to work within those limitations those confines you've been you've been given in life and you can have a really really good
1: life even doing that you can and it's hard in this environment you know in in the Kind of social media world where everybody is posting about their fabulous lives and we're bombarded with images of celebrities and wealthy athletes and these people who appear to have it all and don't have any limitations. It's hard to accept your own limitations when the messaging you get is like you're saying, reach for the stars, you can do anything.
0: Have you noticed that issue coming up more and more amongst people you work with? This idea of like, this increasing sense of there's no limits like they they believe that and so they, they live their lives like that but they 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 come to the realization no, there are limits and they just end up frustrated have you have you noticed that sort of anxiety or frustration
1: because of that sort of idea that's out there that there are no limits in life i certainly have noticed that in you know in the people i know my acquaintances my friends there's the people i come into contact with the the people who come to me for therapy usually come because they've got a lot of shame. They know that's what I work with. So they're not, they're not in that same, that same group. Although the, you know, the, the creation of this ideal self that you're supposed to attain is, is something that shows up in people that I work with, particularly people who have narcissistic issues. They, they want to believe that they can create this, they can become this ideal person. And that's the antidote to that, that shame they feel at base.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the sources of shame. I guess I mean is, are the sources of shame the same for core shame and sort of everyday shame, or are there differences between those types?
1: I, I think they're they're all the same. And you know, in the book, I I came up with these categories of experience to help people understand when and why we might feel shame. Just to sort of just useful labels. I call them the shame paradigms. So I think they're they're pretty intuitive. We feel bad about ourselves when our love is unrequited. So, whenever we like somebody who doesn't love us back, whenever we want to be friends with somebody who doesn't want to be friends with us, that's a a one obvious source of shame. We also feel shame when we're left out, when there's some kind of group we want to belong to, but they don't let us in. When we see on Facebook that all of our friends are you know are getting together without us the the famous fear of missing out is really about the fear of being excluded and feeling the shame of being on the outside so unrequited love exclusion the third one is unwanted exposure i think everybody gets that when you embarrass yourself in public when you make a mistake that's called out when you appear unfavorably for whatever reason that makes you feel bad about yourself and then the final one is one you and I have been talking about a bit already, disappointed expectation. When we have some hope for ourselves, or ambition or expectation and we fall short of it, that it makes us feel bad about ourselves. That one, as, as we were saying, can also be, you know, a message to us that, well, you know, maybe you didn't. Try hard enough, Maybe you need to work harder. Maybe you need to rethink your approach. You know it can be a message rather than just a painful feeling. Can those other sources of shame, like
0: unrequited love, exclusion, unwanted exposure, can those so you know uh, disappointed expectations that can help guide your life and help you improve. But can those other sources of shame sort of change the
1: way you do things so things work out better for you? I, I think so. If you look at unwanted exposure, you know, sometimes the unwanted exposure that embarrasses us is, um, the result of our own choices. Like maybe, maybe I, uh, shouldn't have had that other glass of wine at that party because then I came, became a little too garrulous and said some things I regretted the next day. You know, maybe I need to be more cautious. If you're feeling the shame of exclusion, you know, it, might lead you to choose other groups to look elsewhere for a sense of belonging. It's important to belong. We all need to belong somewhere. And if you persistently on the, the outside of a group, maybe it's because you're choosing the wrong group. Those are some examples. And then unrequited love, it might be
0: something, maybe I'm doing something that's like I'm turning people off for, some, for whatever reason.
1: Or, or maybe you're, you're going after people who are inappropriate for you you know maybe you have some idealized view of yourself that doesn't comport with the way other people see you i'm not sure but but you know people do fall in love with people who are just aren't right for them
0: oh yeah that happens all the time it's a source of frustration for a lot of people so we, we talked a little bit about you know early childhood and you have this you believe that you know sometimes things can happen in your early childhood that can just affect you for the rest of your life and you can you know, you're never going to be able to get rid of it, but you can work with those limitations. I imagine, like, the shame of unrequited love, right? Just having a parent that, as a, little, as a child, just doesn't really love you, that can be a big source of core shame in a person's life.
1: Absolutely. And the, the, the sad science shows that children who grow up with parents who don't love them, their brains are different. There's interesting MRI studies out of UCLA. Um, a guy named Alan Shore and he, he talks about and shows the brain scans of children who grew up in normal, relatively normal environments and those who grew up in, in really deficient ones. And, and they show that their brains are smaller. They have fewer neural connections between the neurons. They're just visibly different. And because brains have critical periods for formation, meaning that there's a, there's a critical period when you need certain conditions for a brain to develop normally, if you go through that critical period and you don't get the conditions you need, like that kind of loving devotion in the first year of life, you, you can't make up for it entirely in later life there's a lot of talk about uh, neuroplasticity these days and the brain is capable of rewiring itself and and making new connections and growing to some degree but but if neuroplasticity were infinite then you know having a traumatic brain injury wouldn't matter right you you just reheal and it's kind of the same way when when i when i talk about the the neural Deficits of people who grew up in grossly deficient environments with parents who did not bond with them in a loving way that, you know, they, they are likely to be marked by that for life. It doesn't mean that they can't grow and compensate, but it's going to be within the limits, you know, imposed by their early experience.
0: How does that early experience manifest itself later on as adults?
1: Well, all sorts of ways. If you, if you grow up with this sense of core defect or unworthiness, it's often an, an unbearable experience. I mean, it's just too painful to feel that way, to acknowledge that you, you feel that way. So you tend to develop a, a set of defenses against recognizing that truth about yourself. And a lot of them are narcissistic in nature. Rather than feeling that you're damaged or defective in some way, you instead insist to the, to the people that you know, to the world at large, that you're in fact a superior person. You're better than other people. So you become, you know, you become a narcissist. That, that's a very common way that it shows up.
0: We're going to take a quick break for your Wordsmart sponsors. All right, if you are a hiring manager or a small business owner, you know that finding a qualified candidate can be really hard. It takes a lot of time, a lot of work, a lot of bandwidth. But there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates, and that place is ZipRecruiter.com/slash/manliness. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to you your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. It's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. So if you are a small business owner or a hiring manager and you're looking, you want to simplify the hiring process, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. You'll be able to try it for free. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com. .com/manliness ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Also buy Squarespace, turn your dream into reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more, Squarespace is the tool for you. With beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And Squarespace's powerful e-commerce functionality lets you sell anything online and analytics help you grow your site in real time. I've used Squarespace for you know quick projects that I need to do. One project that I did with Squarespace was my wife's in charge of her class reunion. She needed a website, so I used Squarespace. The e-commerce functionality allowed us to sell the tickets. I had it up and running literally probably in 30 minutes. It was really, really easy. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. and There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And... If you ever need help, they've got 24-7 award-winning customer support, and you can also buy domain names through Squarespace. So if you'd like to try Squarespace, got a free trial for you. Go to squarespace.com slash manliness. Try it out, build a site, and when you're ready to launch, use offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So again, squarespace.com slash manliness for a free trial. Offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. So we're talking about core shame. But I think you know some people who are listening probably have experienced that core shame they just weren't loved as a kid or they had some sort of traumatic experience where they just feel defective but we can experience these types of shame on a day-to-day basis in fact we probably do multiple times a day right we've all probably today already had some moment of unwanted exposure maybe you passed gas when you didn't when you when it wasn't really a good time to pass gas maybe a friend turned you down you know, when you wanted to go hang out do we are there defenses that we put up on just for this day-to-day shame that kind of get in the way of us progressing as as people
1: absolutely it's one of the major messages in this book that the the strategies for dealing with shame that i describe in my clients who suffered more from core shame are just a more intense version of strategies that we all use for coping with inevitable shame that comes up really every day in our life. So the the, the clinical cases in the middle of the book are divided into the, these three strategies: the strategies for avoiding shame, strategies for denying shame, and strategies for controlling shame. And and I get there are chapters in the book that that describe those in everyday life. So, avoiding shame in everyday life. Well, if I don't want to feel the shame of being excluded, I might avoid going to a party where I don't know anybody. And that's kind of understandable. I mean, that's not pathological. That's sort of like, why expose yourself to something potentially painful? If you don't have to, I mean, you might also want to go because you could meet some new people, but it isn't pathological to want to avoid it. Another example I give is, you know, lots of people do not like to be on stage because they're concerned about embarrassing themselves or, you know, appearing unfavorable in some way. And there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what? You know, I, I don't want to be an actor. You know, I don't want to be on stage. I'd rather, I'd rather not do that. You know, we, we think about, whether or not we know it, we think about the potential for a shame experience all the time. We're, we're, we're anticipating it. So say there's somebody new that you'd like to invite out a, a potential new friend or a possible date. So you're likely to be concerned with whether or not you're going to be rejected, right? Your, your love will be unrequited. So you, you think about how to approach that person. You, you might try and put it forward casually, like it's no big deal, or you just thought about it. Oh, hey, you know, you wanna want to get together for lunch next week? Whatever. You you don't want to feel the shame of of unrequited love or or exclusion. That's normal. Everybody does that. I think we we're all doing it. All the time, I think that strategies for denying shame are also pretty common. I, I talk about them more in terms of, you know, narcissistic traits in the in the case studies. But uh, you know, think back on a, a a fight you might have had with a romantic partner. Say he or she criticized you for something or faulted you for something. I think most people have a tendency to react defensively when they're criticized in that case and at least initially they might they might say well what about what you did you know you, you you they might blame the other person or try and turn tables or make excuses for themselves or even become indignant that you dared to criticize me for forgetting you know the dry cleaning when you never emptied the dishwasher you know these, these are kinds of things that we all do. And hopefully we, you know, we cool down and we are able to say, Oh, yeah, you know, you had a point. I'm, I'm really sorry about that. Th- those are kind of normal, um, normal strategies, controlling shame strategies, self deprecating humor. I mean, it, it somehow feels a lot better to make a joke at our own expense than to hear somebody else make that joke or to expose something about us. I, I think that's a healthy thing in a way. I think we all, we all like, I think it's a healthy sign to be able to laugh at yourself as long as it doesn't, you know, verge into, you know, Kind of savage self hatred, which is more what I talk about in the case studies. So, so those are ways that we all avoid, deny, and control shame in our everyday life. They're healthy, normal, and not pathological as long as they're sort of temporary strategies. Yeah, the uh, the avoid
0: shame. I think that's where you had the case study of how a shame coping strategy um, can become detrimental. Of the the young man, who basically just wasn't doing anything. He's basically just checked out of life. Didn't wasn't going to college, was living at home. He was, you know, seeing you because his parents were making him. We've had other uh, psychologists on the show talking about this tendency of for young men to check out, and a lot of it, it's like the reason they check out because they just want to avoid the shame of failure. So there's like, it's, I mean, especially in this world where it's hyper competitive, right? If you don't get the the right SAT score, you don't go to the right college, like you basically the, the idea is out that you're ho- like your life is just ruined. Well, it's not the case, but they think that. And so to avoid that shame, they just like, ah, I'm just going to stay home and play video games. Right.
1: I mean, so that the so-called slacker personality is is basically organized around avoiding shame. It doesn't look that way. It looks like they just don't have any ambition, but that that's not really the issue, and then that idea of of controlling
0: shame, you know, self deprecating humor can be healthy, but then it can sort of it can verge into an extreme form of like just self pity, where you just instead of letting other people say where you're you're falling short, you just you go ahead and you just lay it on. Well, I'm such a terrible this. I'm a failure. I'm this, and that's just self pity.
1: Right. Right. And it's and it's very it's very destructive. But it, 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 what isn't obvious about it is that it's a it's a strategy for dealing with shame just that you're you're in control of it you're never going to allow anybody else the opportunity to shame you because you're there first
0: but then it holds you back because i don't know people don't like being around you know like people don't like being around eeyores right they're just like nobody they do not and so it, it actually just sort of it's like a vicious uh vicious cycle where people just continue to exclude you because you're just not pleasant to be around Leading you to feel even more sorry for yourself, right? Right. That's I mean, that's what I noticed with a lot of these case studies. There are there are just a,
1: tons and tons of vicious cycles that are going on with these individuals. Well, the pro, the you know as they as they often say in in psychoanalytic therapy, it's it's not the original problem that's causing you trouble. It's it's your defenses against it. That's what's in your way. And in my work with my clients, I'm, I'm always trying to help them see their defensive strategies for coping with shame and how they're getting in the way of them doing the very things that would make them feel better about themselves.
0: Well, let's talk about shame in men because you talk about this a bit in the book. I thought it was interesting you started off or you mentioned somewhere in the book that when... Before you right, you right now, you do video online video sessions, right? So you're someone's at at the computer; they're at their computer. But before that, you did in person, right? Where someone would like you know lay on a couch and you guys would talk. When you were doing the in person, you mentioned that it was like sixty percent women, forty percent men. But then when you started doing the online, it flipped. Now sixty percent of your clients are men, and forty percent of the clients are women. And you kind of made an observation that might be related to a man's sense of shame. What do you think is going on there?
1: Well, you know, the, the whole cultural conversation about expectations for men, that they're supposed to be self-reliant, stoic, they're supposed to be able to solve their own problems, they're not supposed to need help. So, admitting that you have psychological issues and you, you need help from somebody else is, is looked down upon, it's considered unmanly. Even more so in other cultures than our own. I mean, we're, we're relatively liberal minded in that respect. But if you look at, um, you know, other cultures, I think it's much more intense. And it's, it's interesting that I've had a number of men in my practice from other cultures. They were English speaking, but they were, you know, perhaps from, you know, India, the country India, where getting help you know, from a psychotherapist would, would be, you know, admitting that would be suicide in a way. And in your
0: experience in work with men, where do you see the, the, biggest source of shame for men like is it unrequited love unwanted exposure
1: disappointed expectations or is it just all over the place it, it is all over the place and and I think that's I, w- I think that's borne out by the the distribution of the the cases I talk about in the book there's there's men in each section there are men who have problems avoiding shame there are you know men who deny shame and there are men who control shame so I think it pretty much runs the gamut these days. So yeah, so so men are also handling shame in pretty much all the different
0: ways, either avoiding it. We just talked about an example of a lot of young men dropping out simply as a way to avoid it. How do you see men trying to deny shame? Where do you see that? How does that manifest itself?
1: Well, you know, it it shows up in narcissistic kind of behaviors, but also ones that can be like hyper-masculinized, if you know what I mean. Like, There are, you know, normal traits that are associated with masculinity, you know, throughout our history, you know, assertiveness, aggressiveness, competitiveness, those can be hyper-masculinized, like somebody who's like too competitive somebody who has to constantly win at everything and is bent on destroying the competition, that that's a very narcissistic strategy for denying shame and inflicting it on other people.
0: And how do you see men controlling shame? How do they tend to do that? You
1: know, those are the less obvious examples because, you know, self-deprecation, self-pity, and self-hatred are not really socially acceptable for men to be it's you know men aren't supposed to behave that way so you, you don't see that very much those are the people who would probably come to me the the hyper competitive narcissistic type of men who are denying shame are the ones who would never come for therapy um and you know avoiding shame you know i think that's pretty much everywhere no Yeah, for sure.
0: Well, and so we talked, I mentioned earlier that uh, there's been a lot of talk about shame lately, particularly online shaming. You see this happening a lot where people are basically just eviscerated on Twitter or Facebook or social media and they're just shamed. And some people say that's, well, that's a good thing because, you know, people are changing their behavior and it's helping them sort of steer, course direct them but you mentioned earlier, you wrote earlier in an article in the Washington Post that actually, you know, yes, it can be, but also it, you're seeing a, a trend where shame is becoming weaponized and it's actually becoming more destructive as opposed to helpful. Talk a little
1: about that. So there's actually a, a long history of the use of shame to promote social values that are shared. So, you know, Being put in the stocks, for instance, or, you know, the scarlet letter. There are, there are many, many examples from the Greeks onward of, of cultures using shame as a way of enforcing their values. That, that can be a bad thing, but it, it can be a good thing if it promotes more socially acceptable behavior. In, in order to do that, it has to hold out the possibility of redemption. It has to be you should feel ashamed of this and your shaming experience is going to have this duration and we expect you to make amends and then change your behavior that's the only way shame is ever effective the problem nowadays is that shame isn't used in that way shame is used for a vindictive kind of revenge and there's n- there's no chance of redemption and reintegration back into society now sometimes that's that's a, that's appropriate. I mean like for for Harvey Weinstein, let's say that's probably really appropriate. He's beyond redemption. He shows no remorse and no, you know, no sense that he has anything to make up for. But other people their their careers have been destroyed, their lives ruined and and they really weren't given a chance to try and make up for it. I think that's destructive. I think we've gone too far. But that's the way things work, isn't it? I mean, there's all this behavior being described as toxic masculinity and it, it was toxic in a lot of ways and it's being called out now and men are being publicly shamed. That's a good thing, but it's also been excessive and the pendulum will probably swing back at some point and, and, you know, land somewhere in the middle. It's interesting. There's, a, there's been a big debate about Al Franken and the way he was shamed and forced to resign. And people are now starting to re- express some regret about that. You know, even even people who shamed him at that time and thought he needed to resign, There's there's a sense that, well, you know, maybe the punishment exceeded the crime. So, you know, public shaming is a good thing as long as the punishment does fit the crime and it's not about, you know, character assassination and the vindictive destruction of someone's life. And you also
0: talked about, you know, particularly shame towards men. Okay, so yeah, certain behaviors from men probably should be shamed, but there are certain behaviors that are just innate in men, right? Sort of aggressiveness, assertiveness, that's sort of hardwired in a lot of men. And when you shame them for that, like, there's no possibility for redemption. That's like part of who they are, right? So they're just like, why are you
1: shaming me for just just being me? Well, well, right. That That is, well, there are people who will argue that shaming men for being that way is a good thing, because by using shame in that way, we're going to change them, essentially, we're going to change their nature so that they will become more empathic, more emotionally sensitive, more, in fact, like women. And there, there has been a trend, you know, over the, since the 1960s and, and second wave femi- feminism that's trying to create a gender neutral society. And this, this expectation is everywhere that men and women should express the same set of positive character traits. Everything is culturally mediated um, and there's no basic difference. I don't believe that's true. And the science doesn't bear that out. Uh, you know, the, the the traits, the the classically masculine and feminine traits were selected over millennia by by evolutionary pressures to lead. To certain traits being encoded in our DNA, ones that led to greater um, sexual reproduction and survival, and, and you know those those traits evolved over you know hundreds of thousands of years, and they are expressed in our DNA, particularly in the operation of our hormonal system, and you you can't you can't shame that out of existence. All you can do. By expecting men and women to be the same is you can make men feel even more shame and, and either go into hiding or uh, as one writer I like put it, you know, it, it, it goes underground. Masculinity goes underground and then comes out in even uglier kinds of expression, kind of twisted by the shame and resentment about, you know, being humiliated for being who one is—I think that says something about our current political and cultural moment.
0: No, I think that was Camille Paglia that said something. Something, the last, something where, Yeah, masculinity goes underground; and it sort of manifests itself in uglier,
1: uglier fashions than than what we what we had originally. Yeah, the the person I was thinking of at that moment is uh, is the conservative writer Andrew Sullivan. Okay, yeah, yeah. He wrote a he really wrote a really great article. Oh. 16 or 17 years ago, called the He Hormone. Uh, he suffers from low testosterone from having been on antiretrovirals for many, many years. So he has to self-inject with syn- synthetic testosterone, and he talks about what it does to him and links it up to the whole evolutionary history of men and why these are innate masculine traits that you can't change by societal expectation. What, what I... What I say and what I'm, I'm arguing in, in the next book I'm writing is that it, it's like, uh, it's like a computer. You know, evolution has bequeathed to us this computer with pre-installed operating system. That's in our DNA. It's in our hormones. And we can't change that quickly. But there's also the, the cultural software that is able to inhibit Encourage or redirect the expression of these traits, and, and we have some flexibility there. So I think a lot of what's going on now in the in the the conversation about toxic masculinity is a very positive thing, if we view it as how can we how can we inhibit certain really destructive expressions of masculinity while encouraging other positive expressions of masculinity, rather than trying to make everybody gender neutral
0: yeah the analogy that i like is that masculinity is sort of a um it's like an an, like electricity and we cultures create cultures of manhood that sort of harness that energy for if you there's no like like electricity there's no like conduit for it It becomes very destructive right and just kind of goes all over the place but if you provide it some sort of wire and direct it it can actually be really powerful that's i like that analogy right and so i think that what's going on now is people just want to get rid of that difference completely between men and women, instead of okay, lo- accepting, okay, here's how men are because of biology. How can we shape that energy that they have and direct it towards something more positive? That'd be a more useful way to use shame instead of just trying to, I guess, eliminate men completely or masculinity
1: completely. I, I couldn't have said it any better. That's exactly what I think.
0: Okay, well I'm glad we're on the same page. Well, so like let's so we've talked about sources of shame and we talked about ways that we manage shame on a day-to-day basis. But like how can we how can we make sure that we're getting the message that shame is trying to send us, right? So that we can use that to become better. Because that's that can be hard, right? You're feeling bad about yourself because you you got excluded or you didn't get the job you wanted. It's very easy to say, well, they're a bunch of bums. They're missing out on something great. Instead of saying, "Well, is there something that I did that you know excludes?" So how do you how how can you, I guess, listen to the message shame is trying to send you?
1: Well, it, it for sure depends on the nature of that shaming message. It's pretty hard to listen to a shaming message that's you know cruel. You know, or that makes you feel completely worthless. So it depends on how people deliver the shaming message or, or how it comes across. But then I think, and what I'm, what I'm trying to help people do with this book is to, to look at the ways you, you tend to defend against shame because we all do it, right? We all try to defend against shame because we don't want to feel it. And, and if you can, If you can know yourself well, if you can recognize the ways that you tend to make excuses for yourself, blame other people, get indignant when someone shames you, then, then, you know, you can say, okay, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. All right. That's, that's defensive. Take a step back. You know, what's the truth here? You know, what is, what is valuable? What, what can I take out of that shaming experience that, that can work to my advantage because, because often it points the way towards building self-esteem in a better way. It's like it's saying, you know, you, you wanted to succeed, but you, you didn't do it in the best way possible. You feel ashamed of, of the way you behaved. So. Maybe you need to think about that and it, it will tell you, oh, you, you didn't work hard enough or you, you didn't focus enough on this particular idea or you, you need to develop strengths in this area if you really want to succeed, succeed. And that way you have a better chance of doing the very things that will build self-esteem and make you feel better about yourself. If you're constantly warding off shame or denying it or defending against it, you tend to make the same mistakes over and over and over again, because you haven't learned the, you haven't learned the lesson. Is the hardest part recognizing how you deny shame? Oh, I think so. I mean, how many people, how many people really know themselves and, and the ways that they defend against all sorts of things? I mean, you know, one of the, one of the things that seems to be True is that we're much better at observing, you know, defensiveness in other people than we are at recognizing it in our own selves. Don't you think? Oh yeah, no, I,
0: I, I I'm terrible at it, at recognizing it myself. Uh, but then I catch myself, and I feel like an idiot. <laughs>
1: Well, there you go. Don't 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 feel too much like an idiot just say, oh, you know, there I am. That's what I do. I typically do that. You know, I tend to get defensive about something or I tend to behave in this way. I'm going to be on the lookout for that now.
0: And what do you do? like so instead of getting defensive, like what would be a better response to like that feeling of shame, right, okay, I messed up. You caught yourself. Okay, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go down that path where I
1: start getting defensive. What would be the the better step? Well, it's to view it as a a learning experience. And there, even though they don't use this particular word, there is a lot of conversation. About failure experiences, the value of failure experiences and learning from failures. The, you know, the whole startup culture, you know, accepts that failure is, is to be expected. And the only real shame is in not learning from it. They, I look at failure as a shame experience makes you feel bad about yourself because you've disappointed an expectation you hold for yourself. So it's, that's the whole way I'm trying to, to, reframe the conversation about shame in my book is rather than looking at shame as this bad thing that we need to get rid of, it's to look at it as as an opportunity to learn.
0: Well, Joseph, where can people go to learn more about the book and your work?
1: The book is available everywhere. It's available on Amazon. I don't know where your audience is, but it's um, it has a publisher in England, and it'll be available in other languages as well, but it's pretty much everywhere. I think Amazon is the easiest place to find it because, you know, newly published books have a short shelf life and they have to go away to make room for other new books coming out. I have a website called after psychotherapy, which um, I've been blogging about shame and narcissism for years. And I also have a blog on psychology today called coincidentally shame in which I, I blog about shame Lately, more on the, uh, on the broader cultural level and politics and what's going on in our culture. So there, there's a lot of stuff out there. Google my name and you'll find it. Fantastic. Well, Joseph Burgo, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: My guest today was Joseph Burgo. He's the author of the book, Shame, Free Yourself, Find Joy, and Build True Self-Esteem. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about Joseph's work at his website at josephburgo.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash shame, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. If you'd like to listen to ad-free new episodes of The Art of Manliness, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. You can sign up for Stitcher Premium and get a free trial by going to stitcherpremium.com, use promo code manliness, then you download the Stitcher app for iOS or Android and you start enjoying the ad-free Art of Manliness experience. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you to not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action.